0: in in my experience in the real world and all of the prediction markets i've played in there's only been approximately one where uh, a month after the outcome took place there were firm believers that both things had happened uh, and that's trump election and so in that case it seems like the, what, what you're saying is that the market splits. And from that point on, there's a market where people who, who, uh, basically believe the Democratic story and people who believe the Republican story. And they're just in disjoint markets. They're, they're in disjoint markets and there's two different rep tokens out. These rep tokens yeah. have two different supplies and they trade separately. So if you believe still today that Donald Trump won the election, we are a rep. That is now tied to Donald Trump winning the election is probably going to be worthless. Nobody's going to trust you to resolve their markets anymore.
1: This is a treasure trove of a conversation on prediction markets, replication markets, and decision markets with Foresight Honorary Fellow Robin Hansen, engineer Gear from Metaculus, Thomas Pfeiffer from Replication Markets, Paul Gepheim from Augur, Martin Köppelmann from Gnosis, and Chris Hibbert from Agoric. We cover concepts, early prototypes, current decentralized applications, potential problems such as the beauty contest, oracles, and future opportunities. You can find a written summary, slides, and video on our website in the Intelligent Corporation Group. You can join these conversations virtually by applying to this group, or you can join in person by becoming a Foresight member. More at Foresight.org. If you enjoy this podcast, please give us a good rating, tell your friends, and support us on Patreon. Thank you. I'm super stoked for this meeting. I'm not sure if we can make do with one hour. I hope we can. But in the interest of time, I will just uh, kick it off. And I will do so by presenting the thing that I have to think about now when I think about Robin, which is this is one of the very early prediction markets that he actually led at a Foresight member gathering that we had in 1999. And it was set up with him and Chris Hibbert, uh, and Chris Hibbert. And I think people betted really that afterwards by sending checks to the Fawcett office. Here are a few of the, of the claims that they made in 1999. Can you imagine it? Uh, and then, you know, we actually followed up with that in 2000. So, you know, uh, this, this is not a, a new concept, but you know, uh, meanwhile, I think it's never too late to really, really push for them actually, uh, getting more adoption. So if you want to know more about this, go in, in the book. We uh, discuss this a little bit more, but Robin, you're really, I think one of the, the very, very early pioneers in this, and the claims are really outlandish and very ambitious, and I think we could all take a cut from being equally ambitious about the future. This is enough uh, from my introduction. Super excited to have you here. Robin, kick us off. What are prediction markets? Why should we care, um, and where can they need us?
2: Uh, so, am I on? You're seeing me? You are on. All man. right. All right. So... Uh, I'm told we have five minutes each. I'm going to do it five minutes and the rest of them take more than five minutes. You should look at them nasty because we're all supposed to take five minutes, right? I think I have the loudest shirt on and I'm going to try to match that style by making the loudest claim too, all right? So key idea is we frame argumentation in general discussion like we're doing here as prediction. That is a lot of the arguments we make are things that you could ground in predictions about what you expect to happen as a consequence of the things you say. So, frame number one argument is prediction. Frame number two is let's incentivize predictions transparently. So, most of us have incentives when we're talking all the time, but these incentives are kind of opaque and not always great. We want to create a system where these incentives for prediction are transparent and clear to make good predictions. And furthermore, We want these predictions that people make to integrate it into a consensus that we could all use and rely on if we weren't specialists in the topic. We could just use and take that consensus. So that's the key idea. And it's of course notice that say betting markets kind of like Arbitz in a betting market. You you take an argument and you grind it down into a prediction that you agree to bet on, and that's usually some work. And then the bet itself is a transparent incentive. If you're right, you win. If you're wrong, you lose. And the betting market price is a consensus that we can all rely on. And it's a pretty simple, robust institution for putting all this together. So it's an admirable way to do it. So it's less we need to desire it, but it's more there it is. So in my remaining few minutes here, I want to put up some flags about how I think about this thing perhaps different than other people. And you know, if you want to ask me about this later, you can, but I want to say, Here's how I think about this different. So first of all, I'd say what I want most is for us to integrate this process into regular organizational practices somewhere. That's my key goal. I want trials and efforts to do that. So, So the things I'm less interested in are the following. I'm less interested in people developing tools and platforms, which you could potentially use to you know, do a thing in an organization because if you just have those, you don't actually get an organization. Like, what's the point? I'm also not so interested in collecting a lot of new mechanisms, algorithms, because honestly, we've, still, we've got plenty of those and if we just have those, it's not so useful. I'm not very interested in demonstrations of technology showing that various technologies could work in general. I want demonstrations of, in an organization that it's embedded there, it's a practice and it's getting valued. That's the kind of thing I want a demonstration of. I'm less interested in curated prediction contests, which are, to some extent, transparent for, you know, forecast incentives, which uh, come into cut consensus spots. They tend to require more curation. There's somebody in charge turning a lot of knobs, and I'm not sure I trust those, whoever's turning the knobs, or I don't want somebody to have to trust that. I want a simple mechanism that's robust. You can redeploy elsewhere. You don't have to redecide, you know, all the details about which knobs to turn. And so that's partly why betting markets are a nice, elegant thing. There's not that many knobs on a betting market. Turn the knobs, they don't actually change it that much. And so it's a robust thing. If betting markets work, you can know they'll work for you. I'm not so interested in demonstrations on interesting topics. I want demonstrations on actionable topics. So here's the key point. Organizations take actions the information that's valuable to them is the information that's most actionable, connected most directly to the actions they want to take. And that's my reason for interest in what I call decision markets, which are basically outcomes conditional on decisions. That's extremely directly actionable. And that's what we need. We have way too many things that are often designed interesting, but less clearly actionable. Uh, perhaps repeating, less interested in just basic mechanisms and more interested in the integration with culture and incentives. So. We've seen a lot of organizations trying these markets and they basically are more accurate and their users like them, but they get killed because they're politically disruptive. There are a lot of political obstacles. So we just need to go do trial and error in real organizations. And in real context, we'll look at those problems so that we can have a track record of here's how people figured out how to avoid those problems. And you could do that, too. A of innovation is, is a combination of some simple, elegant ideas with a lot of messy detail. What prediction markets need is the messy detail to be worked out. The elegant ideas are there. Uh, finally, you know, all this is therefore needs to be real organizations with real problems need to apply the prediction markets to their real problems, not just because it's full or sexy and they want to be in the news, but because they want to solve that particular real problem. <laughs> And we need to create a track record of that working for them and then keeping it, not killing it when the, whoever's in charge of the project leaves and somebody else replaces it. And that's the thing we haven't had. And honestly, have been waiting for a while, eager to work with any organization that wants to try to do that. And my five minutes are up.
1: Wow. Everyone else <laughs> take an inspiration and in Robin super super crisp. Um, yeah, super cool description. I'm not going to butcher it by taking a long time now. I'm just going to say get excited for Anthony Aguirre from Metaculus. We actually at our 2019 member gathering, uh, used Metaculus and uh, to make, have the speakers, including Robin, make predictions on the talks that they gave and then followed up on them a year later, uh, saw how they fared, uh, and gave prices for that. So, uh, Anthony, what do you have to say about Metaculus?
3: Um, so I'm going to talk about, uh, other ways of aggregating predictions that are not markets. I think there is sort of three major ways that we make predictions in the world um, for three different major systems that have feedback loop, loops, brains, markets, and science. They all have things that they're trying to do and sort of a feedback loop that tells them uh, that rewards making good predictions and, and disincentivizes making bad ones uh, so that they get better. Uh, brains we're used to, markets uh, we're used to, prediction markets are a little bit new uh science we're very much used to and i think there's an interesting place in try to combine some of the powers of all three of these into one the the basic way that macaculous and similar platforms so the 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 things done by good judgment project and and others uh are similar in this way is that the essentially ask for a bunch of independent forecasts from people so pose a question ask for forecasts um then there's some data sides that can happen on those forecasts. So you don't just have to take them at face value. You can know that people are uh, biased in various ways and account for that. Use the kind of data set that you have built up over time of all of the forecasts to make different manipulations of the data for, for better accuracy, including you can weight different forecasts based on that individual's track record. Um, and then you can um, basically put those together into a single aggregate prediction. Now these sorts of things uh, have a lot of differences from. So I'm using Metaculus here, but but it could be uh, any one that operates some, sort of similarly. Uh, have lots of different sort of pros and cons, just differences from prediction markets. Uh, I don't think I want to go through all of these, given the the time limitation. Uh, but some crucial ones I think are uh, the issues with securities regulations and online gambling regulations that that have been hard for new for prediction markets to negotiate there seemed to have been some progress in that with cryptocurrency and with calci getting approval for actually just doing it straightforwardly um there are major differences in sort of barriers to entry i think prediction markets historically have had challenges about liquidity uh partly because of that and partially because it's a default negative or zero sum game um, so they're just the knobs and and dials that Robin doesn't like, I kind of like because those knobs and dials allow you to design systems all kinds of ways to get the sort of effects that you want. Um, there also have been challenges figuring out what the financial model is for these systems. Um, the casino model is a is a viable one. People do go to casinos and gamble even though it's a it's a uh, expected loss for them, but they do it <clears throat> that can work um, one that I think will be a little bit more pro-social and may work in the in the long term. In prediction markets, is that uh, companies that want to hedge against real-world events effectively supply the money, and people who are who understand the the probabilities well can extract that money because the, the companies are okay being sort of the dumb money in order to put the hedge where they want it. Uh, Metaculous functions more like a consultancy. The idea is that prediction consumers who want the predictions will subsidize the prediction makers. Uh, with the platform taking a cut for operations, uh, Metaculus as a platform. Just a quick status update: uh, around seventeen thousand predictors, forty-two hundred questions, half a million predictions, sixty thousand comments. Uh, Eight hundred, well, eleven 1, hundred and sixty questions have resolved so far. To to give sort of the data set and the track record. Um, <clears throat> this is still small by by standards of online platforms, but big by the standard of prediction markets. Um, one thing I will note is that starting living good online communities is really hard. Pretty much everyone you interact with is a big winner, uh, and that you don't see the gazillions of other ones that uh, that didn't succeed. Survivorship bias is gigantic here. Um, so don't, underst- don't underestimate how hard it is. Uh, this is something that I'm feeling really good about that we've managed to do as well as we have. Uh, the things that Metaculous likes to do are focus on Making the best possible predictions. That's kind of, you know, whatever it takes to make really good predictions is top line. Uh, but there are lots of other values that we like, uh, paying attention to the community, really building that, that up positive sum dynamics, really interfacing with the other stakeholders, uh, and, and people that we want to get predictions working for. I totally agree with Robin that a crucial thing is trying to figure out how we can put predictions to people's use in making actual decisions. Uh, finally, a couple of exciting new things that are happening with Metaculous. We have a new thing called Forecasting Causes, which are essentially a, a way that the commu- a community can generate a tournament and, and discussion section and products and outputs for, uh, regarding a particular set of things. We have launched one about uh, feeding humanity and alt Uh We have a major UX and UI design coming out soon. Uh, and a cool integration with the Approve the News platform, which you should, should check out if you haven't done 30 seconds too late. I'm sorry, but I'm done.
1: All right. Next up, Paul am so, so, so excited. Uh, I think over, you know, is really the service that uh, is uh, enabling uh, the immutability of prediction markets, not only cross-jurisdictionally, but also uh, allowing monetary incentivization for actually betting on them, which, uh, you know, could potentially open them up to a much, much, much bigger set of people. So, uh, Paul, what's new at Over?
0: So much is new here um i'll give I'll give the, the the very fast TldR of what we where we came from and where we are. Um, I would say that Augur has been approaching the problem that Robin um, you know invented years ago and took a different approach to it instead of looking at how we can just implement this thing uh, organizationally, which is a huge problem and is very valuable. What Augur wanted to do was take a look at the issue of how can we actually provide access to this thing as a global financial good, right? As a tool that can be useful uh, for uh, surfacing information that is available in the world that is otherwise not able to be compensated for it in a, in a good way. Um, and so the approach that we took to that was by building our platform Augur on the Ethereum network. This is the, you know, it's a cryptocurrency based uh, uh, prediction market platform um and what we quickly discovered is that there are a few very large problems that exist in the space of if you are trying to create a global distributed set of prediction markets um there there's a couple of big problems that you need to solve um so we've broken those problems off into kind of the big categories the first one is what we call the oracle problem uh this is something that um martin and uh joey have uh argued about on twitter over and over and over again um the, the main issue is, uh, so say we, we can create these markets and say we can engage people in, um, in doing this, whatever action it is, whether that's kind of a betting action or whether that's more of like a, a hedge kind of insurance sort of, sort of action. If we can incentivize people on to, to do those things in order to use their knowledge, how do we actually resolve those things properly? How do we know that the outcome that people were betting on wasn't manipulated just to make money but the outcome is actually something that is meaningful in the real world um so since 2015 our augur's core foundational uh work has, has been working on this uh, oracle problem um with that we kind of created this thing called the augur oracle it's a truly uh, incentive compatible uh oracle system where people can uh report the outcome of a market and there is a uh, increasing, uh, increasing set of bonds that is placed upon, uh, disputing the outcomes of those markets. Um, and in the worst case, what actually can happen is that two universes are created. If there is no agreement that's, that's found through this process, multiple universes, we call them universes are created where the people that believe that one thing happened can now bet in the universe where that happened. And the people that believe that another thing happened can bet in the universe that that happened. So we can kind of actually create a structure where, um, it, where, where you can really truly stake your money on the outcomes that you believe happen without falling into the trap of a Keynesian beauty contest and trying to predict what other people believe will be the winner. Um, so that's kind of been our major focus. So, um, for anybody that hasn't gone and read it, go read the Keynesian beauty contest, you know, Wikipedia article or whatever. Uh, but that's the core thing that we've been trying to solve for, uh, for, for years. Um, so we've released two versions of that Oracle. The current one is live on Ethereum mainnet. Um, we are now switching our focus for the short term to focus more on how do we actually create good user experience around people that want to participate with these markets. Um, because, uh, although we've created this system, which is censorship resistant and it's decentralized and it, it, you know, it, it's worldwide and it, it, it does work. It's currently extremely expensive to use. So the next problem is to figure out, okay, so now we have this system that we believe is economically secure. How can we create ways so that people can actually interact with the markets, use this oracle in order to resolve them properly and get the information they want out there without it, without it costing a fortune or be too slow? So we're really working more on this other side of it, like what is the user experience of somebody that wants to actually use these things? Um, we're currently starting, uh, we just launched a product called Augur Turbo. It's the other side of the world from this from this Oracle problem. Basically, you can bet on markets and you just trust that Chainlink uh will resolve it properly to start. Um, but we're gonna take that, which is a user experience test, and we're gonna slowly build that in. So it's ultimately secured by this Oracle system, which means that people can both bet on the outcomes that they want of these kind of user-generated markets, and they can be uh, verifiably resolved so that people aren't just scamming other people in order to get money out of them, but they provide useful predictions. Um, Do I have another minute?
1: Ah, Well, let's, if you can do 30 seconds.
0: Okay, never mind. That's enough. I'll send you guys a link. Okay.
1: Okay. Great, thank you. Well, little did you know, we don't actually have to Google the Keynesian Beauty Contest because Chris Hibbert is going to um, uh, read oh, uh, the whole proposals with the Beauty Contest. So really, really happy to have him here. Anyway, before that, we'll still get to another project. This was one that we recently looked into, which is replication markets. Super, super excited about replication markets, especially how they can maybe even be used as decision markets to incentivize the kind of research that is predicted to have low replicability. So Thomas, thank you so much for joining from Replication Markets. I'll share more info about you in the chat.
4: Okay, great. Thanks. Yeah. So Replication Markets uh, is a bundle of projects that started um, around 2010. So back then, we had what's called a replication crisis in science, which in turn was triggered a few years earlier by, uh, among other things, by a paper by John Yonidas, that was called Why Most Published Findings Are False. And um, so that motivated a bunch of research fields, predominantly in the behavioral social sciences, to analyze it empirically. And um, they did a bunch of large scale replication projects. So it basically sampled studies, redo the studies and see how much of the original results would hold up. Um, we at this point, um, and we, that's Anna Weber, also here, Magnus Johannesson who's from the Stockholm School of Economics and Yiling Chen from, from Harvard. Um, At this point, we're working on on prediction markets a little bit, exploring them and um, these replications. We have a perfect opportunity for us to test them in practice and um, basically try to check whether they can elicit informative forecasts about the outcome of the replications. And of course, that's um, totally inspired also by Robin's work, in particular, put gambling safe sites, right? Um, So in our design, we are are much more than than Anthony's um, platform. We have, um, we run, um, four or five projects so far in each of these, um, projects, we have about 20 to 30 questions. So there are studies Will this study published in, let's say PNAS in 2010 or whatever, will that, um, replicate or not. And, um, we have about 150 to 100 participants in these markets, um, People play not with their own money. We wouldn't get that through our ethics review, so they, we give them the money they play with, but they, um, still are incentive compatible mechanisms and that people, um, earn more money if they make good predictions. Uh, we usually use also, it's not a standing platform. We usually work with commercial providers such as Consensus Point to set up our markets because we are not having continuously markets running or at least till recently. So from, from like, um, our first four or five projects, we um, just published a paper in uh plus One. We analyzed the data, so we get really good correlations with, with the actual outcomes. So we are fairly fairly predictive. And at a scale of 100 uh, or so um, papers that, that we have analyzed, two and three, that um, basically then put us to a point uh, fairly recently where we were thinking about what to do next. And our priorities there are, Um, increasing the accuracies further of the forecasts, um, increasing the scale and broaden the scope, and then also moving towards decision markets. And we had a bunch of very interesting opportunities coming up um, to um, get started with this, um, two of which I want to um, basically describe in a little bit more detail. First one, DARPA score, right? So DARPA is running a a big um, prediction or a big uh, replication effort Um, They basically start with about uh, 70,000 research claims, 30,000 publications that are being annotated. 3,000 are being annotated in greater detail. And DARPA is basically um, funding to elicit forecasts for the replicability of these 3,000 publications. So the trick here is replications are expensive. They are only um, actually replicating about 10% of these things. So we are betting uh, on things that are not necessarily going to happen uh, that that moves us slightly towards decision market um, territory. So um that's that's very interesting um what, what we've been doing. So we used the decision market approach with, with a sort of dumb decision rule in a sense that the forecasts did not determine which kind of things would be actually selected for replication. Um and, and we did that by um by basically um using standard prediction market approaches, except the shares um that, that we would be trading. Would be paying out instead of one dollar one over um five dollars where five is the probability of a claim being selected, which is a constant in that case okay so um if you have any questions, we also have a paper very recently um on on an archive um that that outlines the whole um a of anatomy um, of of this um fairly big um project. Um the second thing that's probably more interesting from a point of view of decision markets is and that's that's just going to to restart now is that of course a decision market can can use the forecasts um to to prioritize um for in this context what um what study to replicate and that's what we are doing what can kind of imagine different strategies there so if one if one is interested in debunking claims, one would basically be um predominantly select um studies to replicate that are forecasted to to not replicate, so to give a, a different result than the original result. If one is looking more for, for confirmation, we would select those um those studies to replicate that are forecast to replicate. And if, if one is interested in, in information gate, we probably would take the, the studies where the uncertainty is highest. Now, for our upcoming project, we are going through, um, through, through betting of, of about 50 replications of um, studies that were published in PNAS and that used um, MTurk as a, as a subject pool. So that's, a, that's basically the defining feature for, for the sample. And um, our sampling strategy then for, for what is being replicated is a little bit different from what I explained. So we do two samples, one with a high probability, one with a low probability of being replicated. Because our objective is really to show in this case um, that yeah that that uh, we get differences in between the samples. Okay, so that's all I want to say. And um, if you are interested in these projects, we are always looking for collaborations. Um, please drop us an email. Thanks.
1: Thank you so much, man. I can't wait for the discussion. I hope you all know that you know we will have a discussion after this. So please already start collecting your questions in the chat. I think you know having your uh, your interest peaked by this is. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it's fantastic. Next up, we have Chris Hibbert. And so Chris Hibbert is here on the red team. Um, and so he um, was collaborating with Robin at one of the uh, early um, foresight um, prediction markets at our member gathering and has had since had done his own efforts in that space. And uh, he has uh, extensive beauty comments uh, criticism. So Chris, I'm super, super excited uh, to have you here. Um, I and We were conspiring a little bit on this meeting, i.e. I was begging you to do this meeting with me. So thank you very much for joining, and we are really looking forward to your potential criticism or pointing out problems. Thank
5: you.
0: Uh, yeah, I've been involved with prediction markets for quite a while. Uh, worked with Robin and Mark. I'm back at Xanadu in the 90s. Uh, I'm, like, I'm currently working uh, on smart contracting at uh, Agoric with Mark Miller. Um, so Paul's presentation stole a bunch of the wind from my sails. Most of this was intended to be a rant about uh, uh, Keynesian Keynesian beauty contests because that's what I had seen all the times that I'd looked at Augur. Uh, I'll talk about the importance of Keynesian beauty contests and avoiding avoiding them, but uh, apparently it's not a. I'll have to look more at what Augur is doing now to understand. uh, uh, how the what wh- what how I feel about what they're doing now, um, we could fight about it. Yeah. So, um, uh, so making decisions. So, Robin talked about decision markets in a couple of particular cases that he cares about currently about when prediction markets are most important or or most I- effective. Um, Mark Stigler showed in a couple of his novels, David Sling and, and some of his other stories. Is characters using prediction markets to make plans for highly variable situations, of fog of war, adversarial action, uh, even developing new technologies. And so my my point of view about prediction markets is when there's a question about an obscure su- su- subject with a surprisingly high probability uh, of a coming to a, a account, that's a signal that somebody wants to take something, uh, that, that somebody might want to take some action on and, so, it's the unusual situations where you where I most care about prediction markets coming up with the right answer, and that requires a decision criteria that uh, uh, isn't subject to the whims of the crowd and the The problem with the Keynesian beauty beauty contest approach is that I mean, as we saw in the most recent presidential election, there were lots of different opinions about what had actually happened, and one of my coworkers uh, thought that he had won a lot of money immediately after the election took place because he just looked at the the news reports on what the electoral vote outcomes were. And I knew that it depends sensitive, very, with a lot of sensitivity on what specific question was asked if you have a good prediction market. And there's lots of different ways to phrase the question about what happened in the presidential election. There's the popular vote, the electoral vote. There's who's actually going to be inaugurated at the end of January. There's what's the electoral college actually going to do. And all the time from uh, at the begin- beginning of November until at least mid-January, maybe until the end of January, there were lots of questions about uh, what's the Supreme Court going to do, what's going to happen in state legislatures. Uh, and uh, some of the prediction markets on that question uh, made their decisions in December and you, we just didn't know the answer at that point. So for um, on a laying off risk or making insurance, uh, um, what I really care about is in these unusual situations, having a decision criteria or decision process that is clear to the people who are betting ahead of time and uh, uh, gives an incentive to people to think about what's the actual outcome going to be and what's the judge actually going to decide rather than what are most people going to claim uh, is what happened. Uh, I'm really glad to hear that Auger has come up with a mechanism, uh, uh, but I'll have to, as I said, I'll have to study that to, to find out what's going on. I can stop early because um, Paul, uh, <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe resolved most of my issues. I don't know. I'll have to figure that out. Well,
1: super excited for the discussion about that. Um, I think next one up, uh, also on the red team, is Martin Koppelman from Gnosis. So Martin also had, I think, a few reservations or at least critique points and two prediction markets. Uh, Is that correct, Martin? Uh,
6: yes. Or I mean, just just empirical, uh, um, yeah, uh, things things we learned along the way. So short introduction. So I think generally, uh, Gnosis we um yeah tried to are uh, trying or tried to <laughs> achieve something very similar as this this auger team so built an open open prediction market where anyone for, yeah use cryptocurrency anyone could uh can uh start the market um on anything yeah and we have built that uh that is available um yeah and it <laughs> basically turns out uh People are not that interested in it, <laughs> frankly. So um, uh, we um, but right right now the reality is we have also built other things along the way, and those things just got way more uh, interest and people used them heavily. And so uh, our book was shifted, yeah, quite a, yeah, simply away from prediction markets, despite the fact that we yeah were extremely excited about prediction markets six seven years ago and really spent a lot of time and energy in uh, trying to make them work. So, I'm, yeah, maybe, I mean, I, I don't have, of course, a complete answer, and I won't make the claim that they can't work, but I can maybe share a few things, uh, what, what we experienced uh, in, in a way, how, how they don't work. So we, we came from the kind of classical uh, prediction markets, I, I, I guess I call them, where it's purely about financial incentives, it's purely markets, and it's not kind of other, like, um, uh, yeah kind of social uh, in, in incentives or, or, or yeah um so in the pure um yeah market market uh with pure market idea of course you have the problem that prediction markets are generally zero sum game or yeah maybe negative sum game um and empirically the only two uh, yeah betting markets that are quite uh, active are sports betting and um and politics, or I mean, but they are also pre- pretty much only the uh, U.S. presidential election. Uh, everything else is also not too too um, well, doesn't get enough. And um, yeah, and so it it, it seems to be um, that for markets to work, or for for um, for zero sum market to work, you obviously need someone who's constantly losing money. Uh, it's forward spending, That's kind of obvious. Who that is. And as you have those people, you definitely then develop yeah, a group of people who really um yeah really become experts or really kind of put in enormous effort into figuring out uh, the real probabilities of an event. Um but that requires yeah many, many millions of, of, of money that's basically to be made. So the idea of eviction markets is okay, we can use this or our early understanding of the idea was we can use this for, for useful stuff. So then there's the idea. Okay. Well, let's fund the market. And we did that in a, in a, in a few examples. So a year ago, well, Corona was, uh, uh well, is, I mean, it's still a big topic, but a year ago it started and we were just ready with a version of our new platform. So we started Corona information markets. Um took fifty thousand dollars to fund um those markets and and hoped uh to get uh some insights from from that uh and it turned out um yeah fifty thousand dollar or i mean that the word spread across ten markets so five thousand dollar per market and that 's definitely not something where you get people like to to well quit what they're doing and and then try to figure out uh, what the probability of that that question is and and, and try to get some money. So we went on and increased the amount and and had uh, at least um, six markets where we put in $50,000 per market. I thought, okay, well, $50,000, that should do the job. That should get people uh, excited and and, uh, kind of, well, we can later figure out where this $50,000 would come regularly from. We just sponsored in the beginning, uh, but we wanted to see at least, okay, well, if we put in $50,000, we will see, uh, kind of have the feeling that that the the market forecast is is accurate. And and it turned out that even that was not enough. Um, And it became to me a little bit more clear um, that this is actually not that unexpected when I... um, when I uh, look deeper into it, kind of how much from an individual perspective, how much could I actually make? So from our perspective, we put in fifty thousand dollars to an LMSR market maker, uh, where we can just let it run. So we would expect to lose it fully. But as a trader, um, the amount you can make is is also then less smaller. So so let's say the pr- the current probability thirty percent or the market price. 30%, but you believe it's fifty. And maybe you are even right. It's it is fifty percent. The true probability is fifty percent. Um what you will be making with a ten thousand dollar bet is obviously just the difference. So you just have an expected value. Um so your 10000 thousand dollar bet will have a or ten thousand shares will have a f- five thousand dollar payout. You need to so so in the end you still have a not that great payout. You have a Fairly high risk because obviously you might still lose. You mean you 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 are right with your with your assessment that fifty percent and not thirty percent, but you still uh, end up losing money. And the simple reality is a lot of people wouldn't do that bet. Um, so um, it it takes a very very specific uh, type of people that that are kind of um, are very long term thinking, are very well risk uh, yeah kind of don't care about uh, risks so yeah maybe just maybe i I leave it here right so just a few um problems we encountered
1: okay perfect thank you so much man there's so much to discuss um i think we start the thread with chris and paul on the beauty uh sorry on the beauty market thing maybe paul wants to just answer to chris then um anthony had uh, another point and then um we'll you can just you know chime in whenever you want. I'm going to totally retreat uh, for the speakers, and then I'll only interfere in case I want to open up another bucket. Okay.
0: Yeah, Chris, I'm in, I'm interested in uh, understanding kind of what your what you saw and what your concern is, and what you'd like to know about what our Oracle solution is. Well, what I what I saw early on was that the appeals process went to a broad panel of of participants, and uh, that just seems rife with kd and b contests it seemed mm-hmm. like they were they were rewarded explicitly for voting correctly which means voting with the majority and mm-hmm. and i i didn't get past that i don't know if that's still that mechanism uh when you're not using pools. yeah so so that is um that's never actually been the full mechanism and i, I think, think that's the part that's that's, that's interesting to hear so the way that the Augur Oracle system works is that on the front end of it, it sort of looks like a Keatsy and Beauty contest. What you more or less have is there's an outcome that's stated as, um, you know, Donald Trump won the election. Say somebody, the, the, the market creator says that that's the outcome. Um, immediately after that, people can stake, uh, our rep our token on either side of that. And this is the part that looks kind of like the, the Keatsy Beauty contest. What it does is it says, Hey, um, how much money is on either side of this? Did Donald Trump win or did he not? Right. Right. The place where it becomes interesting, however, is yeah. that one end reads certain, and it should be the case that there's an equal number of people who have a financial stake in the particular, in both, in both outcomes. <laughs> exactly. 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 So the place where it gets. Or, or, uh, maybe not equal, but a similar amount or a similar amount of financial size, of size. Yeah. That, uh, for, for that risk. Um, however, with Augur, where it becomes interesting is that you've now staked your money on either of these sides. And, um, if one side no longer can gain enough money to win, then they, then the other side loses all their money. So you've now not just voted but you've actually voted and had the ability to have the winning side take your stake of that. Secondarily, if we get to a point where even with that risk, the stakes get to a certain size, currently at 7.5% of the total market cap of rep, if that happens, instead of simply resolving the market for the biggest side, what we do is we say, hey, Both of you, both of these outcomes clearly have enough support that they could be real. So what we do is we create two markets, one where Donald Trump won, one where, you know, Joe Biden wins. And then people choose where to migrate their funds. You can only migrate your funds in one direction. This means that there is a universe where Joe Biden wins. Now my wrap, my tokens, I migrate over to this universe. And I can now use these to participate in resolving other markets. Now, there's another universe where people can migrate their ref to the one where Donald Trump. Won, right. Although, so Lee, so in, in my experience in the real world and all of the prediction markets I've played in, there's only been approximately one where uh, a month after the outcome took place, there were firm believers that both things had happened. Uh, and that's right. the Trump election. And exactly. So in that case, it seems like the, what, what you're saying is that the market splits. And from that point on, there's a, a, a market where people who, who, uh, basically who believe the Democratic story and people who believe the Republican story. And they're just in disjoint markets. They're, they're in disjoint markets and there's two different rep tokens out. These rep tokens have two different supplies and they trade separately. So if you believe still today that Donald Trump won the election, yep. your rep that is now tied to Donald Trump winning the election is probably going to be worthless. Nobody's going to trust you to resolve their markets anymore. So our belief is that in this case, the real world outcome is the one where the... I think, there's, of- I think there's still 10% like- of the country. I think there's still 10% of the country that thinks that that was the case. That's true, but ninety percent of the people that participated in that market don't need to deal with that.
1: All right, we have one uh, comment on that by Mark, and then Anthony, I think, also had a comment in the chat that he may want to make it with you. And then afterwards, we'll move on to a new question from Anthony yes. and from Robin to Martin.
5: Yeah, the the um, well, first of all, I share Chris Hibbert's um, uh, opinion of the Keynesian beauty contest, but the mechanism that Paul just explained. Uh, uh, which is forking the universe into two separate universes like that, I think is not a good outcome. I think it's a terrible outcome. I think it's sort of, uh, it's it's uh, the outcome that means the prediction market failed to create an honest consensus, failed to create an odds that people can use to, in- to inform things in a common way. Uh, we don't have two separate universes on a stock price. And that was, uh, and the stock price gives us an honest consensus on the value of a company. Uh, And that was part of Robin's original inspiration for what he was trying to do here. I think the missing mechanism uh, is reputation feedback. And I think where that reputation feedback has to come from uh, and where it did come from in the early prediction markets that Chris and Robin were both involved in is that when you create a proposition for people to bet on, the proposition itself explicitly broadcasts, explicitly states its decision criteria, explicitly states, for example, who the judges are going to be and what the decision rule among those judges are. And that reputation feedback means that people looking at the proposition can make the judgment not only about what they believe about the proposition, but what they believe about the juror, the, the explicitly enumerated jurors and the decision culture. Uh, and this lets p- potential jurors compete. It lets feedback from bad decisions, uh, or what some people think are bad decisions, feed back into what you think of future propositions using those jurors.
1: Anthony, do you want to make a case here?
3: Yeah, I, uh, I wrote this in the comment, but I, my experience, I would say, is that with Metaculus that there are very few, like the overwhelming majority of questions, if they're constructed well, as Mark was just uh, saying, like specific resolution criteria, just resolve clearly with no problem. And so it's, it's a small minority of things that, where you get hung up either because your question was flawed or because society is flawed and like can't get its to act together in terms of what truth is, um, and those are those are important. But um, I think a very elaborate mechanism to treat that small number of questions, um, you know, may be necessary in, in some cases. But I think it, it's sort of best to be avoided. So I think what what is nice about the metaculus method versus a market, for example, is that if a question is ambiguous, we can just say it's ambiguous. We're not going to re- resolve it. Done. Um, now, that that may be doable in some market mechanisms, but it's 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 clearly more awkward, and it's also more awkward if there's obviously lots of money on the line in one particular question, where like in the Trump Trump case, like millions of dollars are riding on the resolution of that one particular question. So, yeah, I guess my feeling is that this is a. It's a non-problem in some mechanisms and a, and a big problem in others, um, but totally solvable probably in in all of them without like a a very
0: complicated um, like oracle yeah. system. I'm, I, with them. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna interject quickly. I think it would be a real shame if the question about whether Biden or Trump was elected was uh, tossed back as not determinable because the public is divided. I can think of one question on okay. the foresight exchange. Uh, a, a play money market that's been going on for a long time. There, there was a question about whether North Korea was going to launch a nuclear missile at Japan and North Korea launched a missile. They aimed it towards Japan. It wasn't clear whether it land, where it landed or whether it was nuclear. And so the judge threw up his hands. But most of the time on important questions, you really want an answer.
1: Robert,
2: here to- I'd, I'd like to make the comment that when a prediction market or decision market or contest process is targeted to a particular customer who is buying the information, then they're the obvious people to judge these particulars. So for example, if the organization wants to know, will we make the deadline? Then they're the ones to tell you whether they make the deadline because they're paying for that information. And if they corrupt that process, they won't get estimates that are useful to them. So these issues of who settles the bets are mainly issues at these big public markets where there is nobody paying for it. People are just trading but is less clear there is a social value there.
1: Okay, I give for the last word and then Anthony opens up a new bucket, and then Robin opens up the final bucket.
0: Uh, my la- my last word there is that uh, on the auger market for the presidential election we got nowhere close to a fork. It's um it's set up such that the incentives are such that it becomes very very expensive to start believing stuff that's not true. So, um it uh it actually did result properly. This this system is really it's a threat. Um, we call it the threat of fork, um, and that threat uh, does kind of push people toward uh, realistic thinking.
1: All right, Anthony.
3: Yeah. I, uh, so that sounds great. I. So I. Yeah. I very much like the idea of like something to fall back on. Um, but yeah, on another topic, I'd I'd love to hear from you know this particular group because there's a lot of of thinking about you know, decentralized markets and mechanisms and, uh, and institutions and governance. Um, what do you see as the, the, is there a major advantage in terms of prediction markets or prediction platforms in them being decentralized as opposed to, you know, stock exchanges, which are very centralized or, or other, you know, other sorts of platforms for making decisions or predictions or whatever. Uh, yeah, I'm curious what people's thinking is on where the advantage is in decentralization.
2: I don't Oracle. see it myself.
1: Martin or
6: or I mean, there's a very, very simple answer. Uh, I mean, I can start a prediction market within five minutes now that's globally accessible, and that's only possible because it's uh, it's decentralized, and so there are very simple legal reasons uh, for that. Um, that being said, uh, yeah, I mean, as I said earlier, uh, it's not, um, um, yeah, it's it's again, it's less clear to me uh, what what use case for those markets are, or yeah.
0: And uh, I would say on on another sort of legal thing, the um, the the ability to access financial markets is not equally distributed, currently, and. Uh, in a in a distributed system that is properly designed, you give more equal access to those financial markets. Um, they may work differently. They may not work as well. They may not work at the scale that, like the New York Stock Exchange, works. But I think we've seen um, at least evidence that uh, we can bring in a wider group of people from a wider part of the globe to participate if it's not locked down to. You know, what the big money players in New York or London or whatever want to do.
2: Electronics gives you more people to access, but it's the decentralized part is to let you obey the laws, but it's not clear they're going to let you obey the laws forever here. So the idea that, oh, you can do it on blockchain because then you can do illegal things that, haha, they can't get you. I'm not sure that you're going to be able to keep that going.
5: And I wanna I wanna point out that I mean Robin ran the first prediction market at Xanadu in like nineteen eighty-nine or nineteen ninety. Uh and the delay between that and them being tried out in the real world, uh in uh you know, we had a 30-year delay because it was uh because of the regulatory clearance issue, because of the regulatory blockage we now have the decentralized ones have gone ahead and created them and created them so that they can be used at scale with universal accessibility and they've and it's not because we uh, got the regulatory permission that we were waiting on for 30 years it's because we figured out how to stop worrying about getting the regulatory permission but
3: well, i would comment that it, it seems that there is now, I don't know how, how closely people have been tracking it, but the, there is now a prediction market that will be launching soon that has the regulatory approval in the U.S. on a pretty wide variety of things at, at large scale. it be very interesting to see how that develops. Um, just
2: want to throw that out there. The, I want to say I yeah. have both. Now. Look, the markets that I want to do have never been illegal. The main obstacle is internal political, you know, disruption inside organizations. Organizations, when they sponsor their employees to bet in markets about their topics, that's completely legal. It's all long been completely legal. The problem is that they're less willing to do it, not that there are laws against. It.
1: And I think okay. you're wondering why that is made you ride elephant in the brain. <laughs> and, and Rowan, if you want to open up the next bucket, which is, I think, a question to Martin, if he's still here, and then. Maybe we could take one from Adam to Thomas to hear in with more about incentive markets, too.
2: Well, I, I was just more of a comment to Mark. I see he's still here. Uh, you know, in general, in, we have a huge history of labor markets. And we know consistently that over time it's possible to pay people doing things. But we just also know that if you have a new kind of job you want people to do, and uh, you just throw the job in the world but you don't do much marketing or let people see experience. Well, you know, all the people are reluctant to do any new kind of job if they don't understand it and, and they feel there's a lot of risks. So it seems to me that whatever you try would be more in evidence of like your marketing strategy and, and how it was framed and what people understood about it. And the very idea that we could just pay people to do things. If we offer on average some incentives, then people will compare that to their opportunity cost of time and do it if we you know pay them enough and of course if they overcome the fixed cost of figuring out how to do this sort of thing and 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 they're used to it they've created a track record of other people doing similar things and they sound like that works you know it just takes time to introduce a new kind of labor market practice doesn't it
6: well i mean it's it's a little bit more than that i mean the again we very concretely we did a large uh, market on when an important milestone for ethereum would launch and so on and uh the, the typical Ethereum developer who would be best suited to answer this question is simply not used in a payment structure where in uh, in six months they might lose money or is it, uh, despite being right and I mean it's I mean on, on a very abstract level you can still say we are paying them but on a personal
2: uh, level it's very, much less like getting a payment I mean there are lots of hedge funds in the world right well, basically, get no, no, sure, sure. While, you know, we're doing these sorts of things. And once they get used to the idea that hedge funds are a thing and people set them up and they have a regular practice, then it doesn't it's cost really that sure. much to fund the hedge fund, but you have to send it up.
6: Well, I mean, to, to get, get hedge funds involved in, in those markets, you well, simply would need more than, 50, I mean, more than $50,000. I mean, then you would, re- I mean, if, if there would be billions to be made, of course. Yeah. But then the question is, where do those, do those billions come from? And in sports betting, billions are to be made. You can make billions with sports betting. Like people are losing billions with sports betting. So someone is making billions with sports betting. And uh, who's paying the billion?
2: We, we also have like hundreds, thousands actually of e- lab experiments where people are paid in the lab to do things. And they the lab incentives make them do things different. And many of those are market experiments where people uh, trade in markets in the lab experiments. So. You know That's a lot of data that people can be incentivized to trade in markets with money.
1: All right. So we now have one minute officially. Of course, everyone who wants to is welcome uh, to stay online. And I will definitely happily do so. I think this conversation is really fantastic. But just uh, finally also to hear from Thomas once more. What is the thing, Thomas, that you think is most valuable to have replication markets on? Uh, and maybe as a follow up also, what's next really uh, for um, for your replication market project?
4: You know, so, so one, one of the things is, of course, like, um, getting scientific consensus. So the, I think there's a little bit of risk of what we're seeing in, in society with the elections or so that, that also in science, you have coexistence and, and entrenchments into different and compatible, uh, positions. And that, that's something I'm concerned about. And I think prediction markets can help a little bit there. Um, on. On the practical side of course we wanna to, wanna to have the community use these tools. And um so journals tend to be a little bit too conservative. We have that in the in the chat. Um I think one starting point would be to to work with archives, right? Where whether, whether a, a preprint is being published, for instance, that, that's something you're working on. So what kind of early early evaluation of, of information that's out there? And uh, the other thing is I would like to see that also as as, as decision-making tools. So like basically where communities of scientists negotiate uh, what's the best experimental design is. And that can be done by betting on on experimental outcomes based on on design um, decisions. And I think the, uh, the scientific community is just like perfect for, for addressing these things because it's really easy to work with. We usually just have to fund the accounts, but um, there's so much um, intrinsic self motivation in there. That's usually not a problem to get predictions out.
1: All right. Thank you. And Kate, because I still have everyone here, just while you're all here, I just want to thank you really for taking the time. I don't think I could have asked for a more, a, 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 a more stellar panel to discuss this with. I will definitely stay on for, with whoever wants to stay on, but I just want to make sure that while we're still here, I just take the time to really thank you. This was really, really fantastic. And uh, I'm super excited about what's going on in this phase. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's really much appreciated. <laughs> Um, okay, so for everyone to stay on, we continue. And uh, does anyone else have a uh, question maybe to Tomlitz on replication markets or another comment that, okay, Robin.
2: I just want to pursue the conversation we are having in the chat. I, I asked, you know, can we get journal editors to uh, use this? Because they would be the obvious people to use the information about whether something's replicable to make a decision uh, about journal articles. So if we can't get journals to do it, it's less clear anybody cares, right? So people pretend they care about the replication crisis, but if journals say, no, we don't really care if papers are replicable in our choice, it's just less clear anybody is going to care about whether papers are replicable. And you know that's the fundamental. You, you presented the closest example of an actual customer who might care here, so that's why I'm pushing with this, because I said the whole thing is to find a customer who wants to buy the information and try to sell it to them. Uh, it's less, I mean, do funders, do funders who fund research, will they care about the estimate of replicability do do people hiring people at the university, you know, into jobs? Do they care about estimates of replicability? Who is the customer? Who cares,
4: and wants to pay? Yeah, those it's good point. Um, I think I think customer of science is a, a tricky question. I think everyone who is in science is of course concerned about replicability. The journals are, but they are not, not concerned enough that they would run prediction markets on that. That's, a, I think, the Maria's try for that. They
2: don't have to run them. They just have to say that they will use your prices. That that's They don't have to pay anything, right? As long as your project's being funded, that, that's the lowest bar you could possibly have. You have to say, we're going to do the experiments on your papers. All you have to do is say that you will look at these prices as part of your process, and they wouldn't even do that.
4: Yeah, Robin, they won't have to find us, of course. <laughs> and like, I mean, that's a little bit of work in, there, in getting the, the community and getting the, I mean, the, the bottleneck is really doing the replications and keeping, keeping um, the community together and getting, getting their responses. So that's a big bottleneck. And that's that expensive activities.
1: Uh, Adam and Anna, you were also commenting in the chat. Anything you want to add to this? If I can add something on. So I've approached several journals in econ and in journals like Nature of Human Behavior and others. And my impression is that the ones run by academics won't say yes, because they're afraid for reputation, strategic concerns, et cetera. So the ones that are more likely to say yes are the ones that like the for-profit ones. So maybe that's, those are the ones we should approach and ask them to like, just add a prediction market part as one out of uh, five reviewers. I mean, everyone agrees that the biggest problem with the review process is the small number of reviewers for a given paper. Here's the solution. But the editors who are professors are not going to say yes. That's my impression. Even those who are working with us in these projects. (laughs) Adam or Anthony, anything to add?
7: I just said uh, in the chat, just as a first step, getting authors themselves. I mean, the problem is that it's impossible to get referees referees for papers and nobody cares. So to have a thickly traded market for every paper is just definitely not going to happen, at least in my field. But it would be very doable just to ask the authors themselves to list in the abstract of every paper as a rule, what percentage probability they think is that they will replicate. That wouldn't be a market, but it would uh, highlight the problem that it's there and force transparency.
4: Yeah. But they also said, have no incentives to to not say it definitely is going to replicate. Um, the, the thing is, I think the journalists should do that. The journalists should put, um, put in buckets in there and so different chapters in there for things they expect to replicate and for things that they don't accept to replicate and then validate it from time to time.
2: But, but I what just has a bad tracker. What, what if they just constantly say it'll be great and it isn't? Who will ever punish them for that, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. I,
7: I was imagining that you would give a uh, a ranking along with people's H index for how well calibrated they are about their own research, but uh, maybe maybe nobody cares.
3: Yeah, I, I I think two places to look are um, the the funders for sure. So I think they they're certainly incentivized in principle to want to fund replicatable or just good research and they have the finances to to subsidize either reviewers or even markets if they wanted to um i think there's something to be said even for just putting it into the review process in any way when i've experimented with this it's been very enlightening to just ask the reviewers to you know compute the probability that they think that outcome a b and c each individually will will be accomplished Um, and we didn't actually use that when I tried it. Like, we didn't use that as a quantitative criterion, like in the ranking, but just having it out there and having people go through that process, I think, was very uh, enlightening in terms of their thinking. So, so I'm all for people who are running grants competitions and things to to start using this. Uh, another thing that we've thought about, and we we haven't quite tried to implement, is, um, you know, a a prediction system on citations of a given paper. So. If you, I, I mean, I would find this super interesting if I'm going to read the archive um, and there are papers that are predicted, you know, I'll, I'll read it a week later. Uh, if there are papers that are predicted to have lots of citations so, and some that are predicted to have zero, that is useful information to me in terms of whether to spend my time reading those papers or not. It's not replication uh, and it's got all kinds of problems because citations do too, but it's information that people would actually use, I think, in in deciding what papers to pay attention would to. But they pay for it? Uh, possibly as part of a service. I think probably not much. I think that would have to be subsidized, but I think it would also be the, the pick the, the real cost is the labor of people uh making the predictions. And and so you'd have to figure out and I think that would probably have to be subsidized because uh yeah academics reading scientific papers are
2: not do not want to pay a bunch of money for it. So Anthony who are your customers that are closest to somebody who wants to buy information because they will take an action based on it? Like Again, that's the thing I'm looking closer to. Somebody buying the information because they want to use it as opposed to want to look good because they paid for it. Or something. Well,
3: the customers, in it, the customers in that case would be the people reading the papers and wanting to read the
2: right papers. I, I mentioned your whole system, your whole your meticulous your system. Who is closest to a customer who's buying the information because they will use it?
3: Oh, the customers for Metaculus in general, yeah, that that will vary from project to project. Most of those at the moment are uh, nonprofits, and in, to what degree, uh, yeah, there's a mix. So, but but they exist. Some of them pay money.
1: Uh, um, so what what best, their, what? best examples are, are best. we had paid uh, by using it at Vision Weekend, right?
5: Yeah, so the uh, besting
0: the best best example. There are, are the best example I think of that, that actually took place was the markets that Corning funded. Uh, Corning is a big company in the glass market and they currently do, you know, cell phones, computers and stuff as, as well as big screens. And they funded a market in, uh, uh, uh where, th- where the price points were going to be for big screens and other kinds of things that they cared about. And, uh, unlike a lot of uh, companies and others, they were the, they were the big, uh, the, the, the big gorilla in this market and so they they figured they would get the most advantage out of that now they only did that for what like three or four years robin it wasn't very long um and then they stopped presumably because of internal politics but they had an incentive to actually get real information about market penetration and different kinds of glass that would be used in the world we by 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 the way i have an example that's new that might be interesting everyone's here so paul um so one of the things that we're seeing currently in the crypto world is we've got a lot of new projects these projects have a lot of value that is locked up in them and there is a very wide and interesting attack surface on those markets around those um products um that can result in huge amounts of money being stolen um we're talking you know i i, I was a victim of one that was about a hundred well a hundred and million dollars two weeks ago um you know i only have 20 grand stolen but like a lot of money and one of the things that we've been looking at is organizations the, these these protocols well not even consider an organization but these protocols as a part of the protocol operation um it may be incentivized to pay the market for information on how secure they are right um currently that's mostly done through bug bounty programs but this requires a certain amount of management and like choosing the numbers correctly and all this kind of crap in order to get bug bounties right. Um, versus being able to surface information as people are getting it. Um, it's a way that White Hats can actually get more money for for participating in this process. And that process can be distributed over a wider amount of people. Um, so that information might be able to be, you know, exposed earlier about, about what is happening. We don't yet have proof that that works. It, it's kind of a, kind of a a in um, the DeFi world this is called a coverage market or there's a product called uh, uh, that offers coverage it's called cover that does this sort of thing um uh, but the problem is that they're mostly currently being treated more like an insurance market than they are a prediction market um so you know people are expecting to show like proof of the loss in order to get paid um you know like yes my car actually exploded that sort of thing but we do think that there's a possibility that these protocols will want to pay for the information about the uh, worldwide knowledge of their security. This may be uh, partly due to my feeling about the uh, security landscape, but this also sounds like it uh, leads into what Kate was uh, talking about in the chat, which is it sounds like an assassination market. If if the everything blockchain market, if if the blockchain space is is target, rich. For security hacking, then, then this devolves to an assassination market,
6: but everything's. But really, it's true. not. It's not really a problem because uh, the 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 value you can expect from the protocol directly is usually much larger. I mean, just in this example, there was this hundred thirty million kind of attack. Uh, so another market with five million wouldn't kind of really make a difference,
0: right? Well, and, and, and the, like, the interesting thing about the decentralized case here is like, a lot of the times there is no single person that you could assassinate to get both, to get that money. You have to attack the platform itself. What I meant was uh, calling it target riches. There's a, a lot of, there's a lot of holes in all of these and putting a big bounty on demonstrating that, that there is a hole. I mean, it, that's already the case. So mm-hmm. Mark, you look like you I, want to object.
5: Yeah. The identifying these holes early is to everybody's benefit uh the 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 way these things are supposed to run the way everybody wants to get them to run is without the holes. so this is the big difference between this and an assassination market it's not the case that for moderate cost i can be invulnerable to the possibility of assassination whereas it is it, it is the case that for reasonable cost i can build a system that is uh with with significant probability actually secure actually invulnerable against attacks, and that's what that's the kind of systems we're trying to build um
0: so we can we could tell the difference between between relatively vulnerable and relatively invulnerable systems and that would be valuable i think the,
2: the yeah. key parameter difference would have to be Basically, how much money could you make in the market and how would that compare to how much you could make with the attack? As long as the mar- money you could win in the market is small well compared to the attack, then the existence of the market isn't going to change the incentives to attack much, right? The assassination scenario is you could kill somebody for a few dollars, but why bother? But now you could make a thousand dollars to kill them, right? That, that's the problem with the assassination. So.
0: Right and in 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 the case of these these crypto markets it's like there's actually a much broader community of researchers that are looking to find these issues than ones that are willing to exploit them because once you've stolen the money what do you do with that money um you know there's there's a limited number of organizations in the world that can figure out how to extract 130 million dollars on the blockchain and um uh do things with it but there's a lot of people that can do security research and would benefit from making two hundred fifty thousand uh, dollars by their knowledge, so um, I think that's a, a place where it becomes interesting. The, the incentive alignment does start to change.
5: Yeah, I also want to point out that that unlike assassinations, people who succeed at attacking insecure programs running on the crypto system are. Are in the long run doing everybody a favor, improving the quality of things. That that this is an ecosystem yeah. in which insecure stuff dies a quick death, rather than in, in the mainstream software ecosystem, where companies manage knowing in, known insecurities for twenty years uh, because they're they're not willing to invest to build a secure system. Uh, so, uh, you know, we're building an ecosystem of the survivors of the possibilities of those attacks. And that's wonderful.
1: Did this conversation pique your interest? Maybe it even inspired a bit of existential hope about the future in you. Search for Forsyth Institute on YouTube or Twitter to stay up to date. Or visit forset.org to learn more, subscribe to our newsletter and join our efforts. We are entirely funded by your donations. So please support us if you like what we do. Thank you so much for listening.